Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 156 of Yogaland. Today, my guest is my good friend, Erica Rodifer Winters. Erica is based in Charleston. She's a prenatal yoga teacher. You can check out her YouTube channel for some videos if you're interested in that. And she is also someone who I worked with at Yoga Journal. She was a former editor at Yoga Journal, and these days she wears a lot of different hats, one of which is helping me with the podcast and just supporting me virtually with all manner of tasks related to our business and to our online courses. But that's not what we talk about today. Today, we talk about prenatal yoga and Erica's approach to prenatal yoga. And I think it's really interesting. We had such a great conversation. Erica started prenatal yoga with a very, very strong yoga practice and found that a lot of the classes she was taking were kind of treated her like she was fragile and she didn't really like that. So she takes just a a different approach and gives people more options and really, really instills this idea of trusting your gut and tapping into your intuition and that that will serve you in the birth room and then also as a parent. We talk about a topic that people don't talk about a lot, which is this myth of the perfect birth the myth of you go into labor, you walk around the block, the contractions have started, your water breaks as soon as you get home, you draw the the tub, you've got the tub all set up, your midwife leisurely strolls over and you go through your labor and delivery with grace and nary a drug in sight or intervention in sight. You know, and I, I just, I mean, I have full respect for people who are able to pull this off. I was not one of them. (laughs) And so I had a lot of guilt after my birth and Erica turns out had the same thing. So it was kind of fun and interesting to go back over that topic and unpack what it feels like to really, really want to meet your internal standard, but that it has to be blended with a sense of knowing of surrender and knowing that ultimately not every single thing is in your control. We also talk about other stuff. It, it's a great interview, I think, for anyone to listen to because it, we really go into this idea of intuition and trusting your body. Okay, enjoy the interview. Well, hi, Erica. I'm so happy to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me. So we worked together for a long time at Yoga Journal, and I know that you have just a really deep practice and knowledge of yoga. I can remember you doing Natarajasana in classes on Sutter Street <laughs> in San Francisco, like in the in a high rise. I can remember that. But I actually don't know how you came to this practice. And I would love to know kind of what was your origin story or what what really hooked you on yoga? Okay, so I was in college And you know how in college they make you choose a PE class? You have to do like four in a year or something. Yeah. And I was, it was my second year in college and I couldn't decide between bowling or yoga. (laughs) And if I did bowling, I would have to leave campus and lose my parking spot. So I was like, well, yoga it is. Your life could have had a completely different path. You could be a professional bowler right now. I know. I I totally could have been. But no, I I did the yoga class. And I remember being 
I was 19 and I just showed up because I needed to get an A. And that was it. And I was skeptical of everything that this poor woman was telling me. And I remember like, okay, well, I'll just try it. And so she says that you breathe in and it'll fill up your belly and then your midsection and then your ribs. But that probably won't be true for me. And like, I don't know. It just, I was like surprised that what she was saying, actually, I could feel it in my body. And in just within the first few weeks of doing this practice, I laid down in Shavasana. She was an Iyengar teacher. So she brought in all the props and it was amazing. And I couldn't stop crying. And I had no idea why. And that was when I was like, oh, there is something really, really powerful about this whole like mind body connection thing, because I don't know why I'm crying. (laughs) (laughs) But it was just years and years and years of like tension and emotions and things that had been locked up in my body that were coming out all at once. Yeah. It really just took a few weeks and they all came out. (laughs) And you eventually stopped crying in Shavasana. I did. Yeah. And I haven't really done that since then. It was just that initial like something in my body was releasing. And at the time, I really didn't understand it at all. But I remember going back and talking to my roommate about it and being like, my teacher says 20 minute Shavasana is equal to like an eight hour sleep. Totally. I remember that (laughs) statistic being thrown around. (laughs) And so I remember like us laying down in our dorm room and like, okay, that's cool. We're going to go like to a fraternity party tonight. So we need to get her like 20 minute Shavasana in so that we don't have to sleep. Oh my God. That's (laughs) hilarious. Yeah, it didn't really work out the way that she had promised. But in any case, I've been doing yoga ever since then. Wow. (laughs) Wow. You're really fortunate that you had your first teacher was an Iyengar teacher and that she had that ability to like transmit the teachings. I'm sure it was, was it like in your gym or something? It was. It was just like in this random gym where they do like dance classes and stuff. Yeah. Oh, and I will tell you one of the things I will never forget. And I always say it to my students that I'm a teacher And I teach teenagers too, but I guess we can talk about that later if you want to. But she was like, I don't care if you do anything. You can come in here. And if you're tired because you've been up all night studying for an exam, you just lay down and you just be here because yoga is about being and it's not about doing. And so there were days that people did that. And she just put a blanket over them and kind of like snuggled them in. And it was just the most amazing thing. What a nurturing person. That's really, really kind. And I've never found her again since then. Her name was Cynthia, and it was outside of Nashville. So if anybody's listening who's named Cynthia outside of Nashville, who used to teach yoga at a college there, look me up. That's amazing. No, that's really, that's really intelligent that she, because yeah, in college, you're just going through so much. And you're sort of at the precipice between being a teen where you're like a little bit eye rolly about things and in in participating things and then kind of adulthood where you have to participate in things. That's nice that you created like a bridge for you guys. Yes, it was amazing. She was amazing. So now these days you are living in Charleston. You've got two beautiful little girls and you teach a lot of prenatal yoga. So how did that start to become your interest? And and what do you love about, about the prenatal teaching and practice? So 
I was one of those people. I'd been doing yoga a very long time when I got pregnant with my first. And I remember going to prenatal yoga classes. And I think I only went to like two because I would go there and it was so gentle. And it was so just like, lay on a bolster, that'll be $15. And I remember thinking like, lay on a bolster. I want to do like, I wanted to really keep my practice up. And so I don't know, I think Annabelle was maybe two when I kind of came back to this notion of, I would like to teach women who are pregnant and I would like for it to be a little bit more movement and a little bit more like challenging good practice. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like in our culture, pregnant women so much are like, and it's not always a bad thing, but it's, you need to sit down. You can't carry this. Don't do this. Don't do that. And oh my gosh, pregnant women are so strong right? and they are so capable. And it's for me, that was the first time people started really treating me. Like I just needed to sit down and I needed help and I needed as a opposed like, to being like feeling like empowered, like I could do this amazing, miraculous thing that was going on in my body. Right. Like treating you so, like you're fragile. So there was that. And then I also had kind of an, a birth experience that was like an epiphany to me too. My first go around because I had been doing yoga for so, so long. I thought, well, I identify as a yoga student. Yoga students have natural births. The end. (laughs) I have the same thing. And boy, did the divine spirit or God or whatever have something else in store for me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think for so many people, that is the case. Yeah. Sometimes, I mean, I'm sure, I don't know what your story was, but for some women, that like hellbit determination to have a natural birth no matter what. And the feeling like you need to kind of go in advocating for yourself and fighting for yourself makes it so much harder. Hmm. And I really attribute that mentality going into it with why I ended up not having a natural birth the first time. I mean, I had a natural, I didn't have a C-section, but I did end up having an epidural. So anyway, there's that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so interesting. All right, let's go into that just a little bit. So Here's something that I take issue with in terms of this belief that we all hold that we quote unquote will have a natural birth and we should have a natural birth, which is the guilt that comes if you don't. And even as my labor was happening, so like just briefly, my story is I went into labor on a Tuesday night. I labored really gently through the night and then it picked up Wednesday Wednesday night, we went in to check me. I was zero centimeters dilated, even though I was laboring really hard. Labored all through Thursday. I think then we went in one more time. I was zero centimeters dilated. Uh, I was fully effaced, which is bizarre that like, I think that the baby just, she just couldn't get into position. And then Thursday night at like 11 p.m., we went in and I said, give me the epidural now. And they tried to talk me out of it. Well, in your birth plan. I was like, I have been laboring for 48 hours. Give me the epidural. And then I ended up with a C-section because she just couldn't, she just couldn't get into position. 
But I, even as I was laboring that sense, I had this like shroud of guilt over me. Like this is not working out the way I envisioned. This is not, what am I doing wrong? This is not happening the way it's supposed to happen. So do you feel like that came into play with you with your first with Annabelle? So much, so much. And I feel like the fear. So I tell my students a lot that I made this mistake of I watched the Ricky Lake documentary. I did too. The Business of Being Bored. Which is so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Like I watched it and I was like, oh, my doctor just wants to cut me open at a time that is convenient for her so she can make a lot of money. And so that I went into it with that mentality that like everybody's out to get me, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So my whole pregnancy, I felt like people were like, you can't do this or that. You need to sit down, whatever. And then I would go to the doctor and they would just try to like rush me in and get a C-section so I can get out faster. And so this is so silly that for me, I felt like I like didn't want to have to tell people that I ended up having an epidural, It wasn't even about the birth experience for me. It was about I knew people would ask and I didn't want to have to tell them, well, I tried for a while, but I was throwing up every five minutes and it was (sighs) the middle of the night and I really wanted to go to sleep. So I was just like, well, just let's just have an epidural so I can go to sleep. Yeah. (laughs) And and that's what happened with Annabelle. I, I definitely started feeling bad about it before I even got there because I felt like before I even started, that everything was stacked up against me. And so the second time I did things very differently and I had a very different result, Hmm. which may or may not have been because of the things that I did though. And that's what I'm so like adamant about like sharing is that there's only so much that you can control. Mm -hmm. And so there's absolutely no reason to feel bad about what happened (laughs) and these things that you really can't control. And of course, there's a whole other discussion around like how women are treated in the hospital and yada, yada, yada. And not that the way that you birth doesn't matter because it does. But, you know, there's so many women that after the fact, they feel like something was taken away from them. And then or even worse, they feel like failures because it didn't go the way that they wanted. And there's it's just so unnecessary. It really is. It's hard. That's one of the big reasons that I focus on prenatal. Yeah, that's awesome. So do you bring these types of ideas into your classes in some way? Like, how do you kind of position yourself so that I mean, I think it's such a tricky line to walk where you want to encourage people to do what they need to do. And then we also know that you know, the cesarean, the C-section rate is really high in this country. And, you know, there are sort of, quote unquote, too many interventions. And how do you walk that line in the way that you teach? What helped me in my second go around was realizing I can't control everything and that's okay. And the second thing is, is just learning to trust So the big emphasis on trusting your body and paying attention to what your body needs and letting that guide you in labor is a huge thing. But in the weeks and the months and things leading up to labor, like trust yourself to make the right decisions about who you're surrounding yourself in the delivery room. Trust that you're making the right decision about who your doctor or your midwife is. Mm. Trust that you're, you know, doing the right thing, choosing the right thing, whether you're having your birth at home 
or at the hospital or at a birthplace or whatever. And just having that like trust all the way through and not to say that you don't listen to other people's input, but really focusing on, okay, when I met this person, could I still breathe really deep? How did I feel in the pit of my stomach? Like those kinds of things that we tend to just slough off as like nerves, maybe it really meant something. Yeah, I'm just so happy that you're talking about this, Erica, because I just think you're kind of talking about really deeply listening to yourself and tuning into yourself and getting rid of this notion of having the right kind of birth or the wrong kind of birth, which I think I did to myself. Yeah. And I mean, fortunately, I was 40 years old when I gave birth. So I, I had enough life experience that I could say to those voices, like after my baby was born and I was like, oh, I just feel so sad that like, you know, it didn't work out the way I wanted. I could, I was old enough to know yeah. I did everything that I possibly, we all did everything we possibly could. And I have a healthy baby and I could, mm-hmm. but but those voices were still there. And so, yeah, I mean, when you think about it, if if a prenatal practice is going to do anything for you, probably the most beneficial thing it could do is to help you listen to yourself and like tune into yourself and really understand your own thoughts and desires and needs in that moment. Yeah, for sure. And, and trusting yourself is a huge part of it. I think about all the time, I'm a yoga teacher. I've studied anatomy. I am not like a surgeon or anything. But if you gave me all the parts of a baby and told me with my mind to put the pieces all where they go, I wouldn't know how to do that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But my body, without me even really being conscious of it at all, just made a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so like, even though like I was someone who would have been totally skeptical of this whole conversation a few years ago, um, before I had kids, but the idea that like my body knows how to do that, I just think, well, what else does my body know that my thinking mind doesn't know? Mm. And so that really helped me through both of my pregnancies. And it helped me so much more in my birth the second go around because I was able to just be like, the best thing I can do right now is to just pay attention to what my body needs and move in that way and breathe in that way and respond to what my body needs because it knows something that I don't. Mm. And then I continue to kind of tap into that when I had the baby. And I do with parenting decisions all the time Mm -hmm. because I feel like there's, as a parent, there's somebody telling you opposite things all the time. And it's not just like the lady at the grocery store or your mother-in-law, but like there are studies that I don't know how scientific they are or not, but don't vaccine your kids. No, do vaccine your kids. And you're like, well, both of these look scientific to me. I don't know. Yeah. So what does your body say? Mm -hmm. That's kind of where I am with all of that. Yeah. No, I I love it. I love it. And I do think that it's true. Like when you give birth, it's that first moment of being a parent and having to make some of those decisions. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't get easier after that. It gets more complicated. Not that that's a bad thing. It doesn't get, it's, I'm not saying it's like fraught, but there, there are so many moments like for me. Yeah. I think it's taken me, my daughter's about to turn seven. And I think I finally trust myself as being the best person to make, to understand her and to do what's right for her, whether that's the way that I 
set boundaries with her or don't, right? Yeah. The way that I, my expectations for her at school or my lack of expectations. <laughs> I, I think for me, parenting has been a lot of undoing of what I, like I was always such a pleaser and I learned with my own child, like that that's not the best thing for her. And so I'm having to undo my own conditioning so that I'm not putting her through, like making her jump through some of the hoops that I had to jump through that really in the long run didn't serve me that well. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it amazing like how much you learn about yourself Yeah, when you're trying to like guide a little person? <laughs> it's kind of like... I don't know. In some ways you can drive yourself crazy, which is why I am so big on like, well, what does my gut say? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but yeah, like looking back at like how you were raised and what, you know, your mom would have done and what somebody else would have done. And I don't, it just, you learn a lot about how you became how you are when you think about trying to instill different things in your little one. You learn about all of these things that you just thought were how you are, are really just part of your conditioning. They're just, <laughs> it's crazy. You're just like, no, but this is how, no, no, I am not actually, I don't have to be a pleaser all the time. I was just sort of taught that that was the way to be. And it worked for me. Yeah. So that was what I assumed was, quote unquote, normal, like neutral mm -hmm. ground. And like you said, I mean, you, you, when you start parenting, it's just like the birthing process. It's like in the birth room, you can see all of the people who have input like you do, your partner does, your midwife does if you have one, your doula does if you have one, your OBGYN does if you have one, your, you know, your mom or dad or your best friend, like every you can see all those players. But with parenting, because it's like, it's more dynamic, it's not happening in just one room, all of those different players and opinions and attitudes are floating around all the time. And so you have to decide what you're come, come back to. And it sounds like you're saying you come back to your intuition. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to. Yeah. Um, or you just like make a decision and hope that it was the best like a, a Hail Mary about certain things. And social media makes it so much worse. Yeah. I mean, as it does so many things. But I just remember, I had little tiny baby Annabelle seven years ago in my lap. And I joined this natural moms group again, because I'm a yogi. I'm natural, <laughs> obviously. And the conversations were all about like, not vaccinating your kids. They were like, Oh, just put lavender oil on everything. And, you know, if coconut oil doesn't fix it, breast milk will. And that was the you know, and not to make fun of that, because there's definitely some validity to those types of things, too. But I just kind of figured out that I am really maybe not that natural of a mom. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it doesn't have anything to do with my yoga practice, right? Like, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe I could be pick and choose the things that I like about that. And then also still take my kid for well visits at the pediatrician and get that input too. Yeah. And that at the end, it's up to me but it is really hard to navigate. Like they're kind of opposing sides of something. And then you're making these decisions for somebody who can't. So the stakes are really high. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It can be all very stressful. Yeah. Well, it's like developing your discernment too. When you think about it, it's, it really asks you to tap into that 
uh, part of the yoga teachings where we try to discern what is actually happening and and mm-hmm. what is our truth in that in that moment. Yeah, like a whole other layer of the yoga practice. Yeah, parenting. <laughs> So slightly different trajectory for a moment. You you mentioned, which I think is really interesting, that it was a little perhaps frustrating to you being treated, you know, like you were fragile when you were pregnant and that you wanted to do a little bit more of a challenging yoga practice while you were pregnant. So do you incorporate that into the way that you teach prenatal and how do you do that? I totally do. And I do it, you know, in the way that anybody teaches like an all levels class, because I had people coming to me, a lot of people who are first time moms, never done much activity at all, have never been in a yoga room. And they're just like, here I am. Right. (laughs) Um, And so I understand why there are a lot of prenatal yoga classes are geared toward those moms. But then I also have moms who are like, okay, well, I've been, I've been doing yoga over here at this power yoga studio for like three years. And I just want to figure out how to modify my practice and keep doing that. So I have both. And it's just the same thing. Like I give the first option and I say, that's totally fine. You can stay here or you can try this. And if that's too much, then back off. Yeah. And if you want more, then try this. And so I usually give three options, but the big thing which now to me is even more important than making it more difficult is making sure that I am emphasizing over and over and over again, don't just do this because you think that you should be able to. And if something feels weird at all for any reason, do something that feels better. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. So tap into that intuition while they're going through the practice and then rely on that to figure out how challenging to make it. Because I do know with my second pregnancy, I did not want a more challenging practice. <laughs> so I oh, wanted interesting. to just go lay on a bolster. <laughs> yeah. Because it's just different for different people at different times. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's funny. I think I thought I was going to do a more intense yoga practice while I was pregnant, but I just, I gained so much weight. <laughs> I was so big by the second trimester. Like my feet hurt and my knees hurt and my pelvis hurt and my feet hurt and my knees hurt and my pelvis hurt. It was just like this constant cycle of like, oh my gosh, I am less of a warrior than I thought I was going to be. And so I kind of took it as like the universe's cue that I needed to soften a little bit more and yeah, and just take it a little bit easier on myself which worked. And I actually then gained like no weight in my third trimester, which is where everybody ah. tends to gain, gain weight. Like I just kind of gained it early and then just stabilized, I think, because I just took better care of myself in a certain way. Yeah. 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 I mean, and I feel like people can get all hung up with how much they should be doing when they're pregnant too. And instead of like, well, I feel like doing this and I want to do this. A lot of people, I'm sure, sign up for my prenatal yoga class because they their doctor told them they should do it. Yeah, 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 I that's mean, true. So there's that too. Like maybe you shouldn't. Maybe you really should just be 
relaxing or walking or doing water aerobics yeah. or whatever. But you can make that decision. You don't need somebody to tell you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But maybe you do need somebody to tell you. Maybe you need a yoga teacher to say, like, <laughs> it's okay to tap into what you need right now. Yeah, totally. That is totally. the essence. Yeah. I'm so curious. This is kind of a random question, but before the birth preparation class that I did for my birth was hypnobirthing. And mm-hmm. there was a lot of really lovely, like kind of guided hypnosis slash meditation, but we were not taught a specific breathing technique. Mm. Was there any specific breathing technique that you did with your second with Sylvia or anything that you like to teach your prenatal students that you find really helpful? So I teach a few different ones. So because I think there are different things that would work for different people during their births because they're all different. So I give a few different options so that people can kind of just have them in their back pocket in case they need them. Um, The biggest help for me with both of mine really was just slowing down my breath. Mm -hmm. And particularly with when I had Sylvia, my second, my doula was like, hey, let's, you know, I know you have this like playlist that you made. Let's just try listening to ocean waves. And so that's what we had on the entire time. And it just reminded me to kind of match my breath with the waves. Mm. And that worked out best for me. I kind of did like an ujjayi breathing and just slowed the inhale and the exhales as much as I could. Some people I think would benefit more from like doing an extended exhale. Some people may benefit more from doing left nostril breathing. I just think having a few different options is a good thing. And I do say to, I think most of the people when they're in the really active part of labor, breathe in through the nose and out through the mouth. So we practice that in my yoga classes too, for that reason. Hmm. I say, you know, traditionally you would be breathing in and out through your nose, but if it feels like a good idea to start practicing breathing out through the mouth, a lot of women do that when they're in labor. So go for it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I love the ocean waves idea. That's a great idea. So whatever sound is soothing and rhythmic to you might be good to have at the ready when you're about to go into labor. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And a lot of women like rock back and forth and sway a lot when they're in active labor too, like just naturally, I think. I know that I did. And so that kind of the the ocean waves too, the like rocking back and forth. Yeah, 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 totally. Um, I, yeah, I'm just having a memory of my doula helping me, but, and we were definitely rocking back and forth. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned, which I don't know if I knew this, that you are teaching teenagers right now too. How is that going? So I volunteer once a month and I teach pregnant teenagers at a group home here in downtown Charleston. And it is going as you would expect, it would go teaching pregnant Challenging. Teams. Yeah. Hard to read them or? Oh, they hate me. Oh. <laughs> they don't hate. Yeah, they kind of Are they do, required to do the class? They are not required. Yeah. But they have to be in the room. And so I've had a few of them. I've been doing it maybe like six months. I haven't been there that often. I mean, for that long. But there was one girl in particular that would be like, why are you making us do this? And she had this attitude and I was just like, that's fine. I'll just keep showing up. I'll just do my practice. Some of the staff would do it with me. Yeah. Now I have one or two that actually is all, they're all about it and they'll come and do it. But that same girl 
who was had such attitude about not wanting to do it or whatever. She has this tiny little baby and she comes and she just sits in the room mm. and she holds her baby and she just watches, mm. even though I don't think she's required to be in there anymore. Because I think even though she acts like she's so not interested, she's paying attention. Like she'll be on her phone and like acting like she's not. Uh-huh. But she kind of is. So I'm like, you like this. Yeah. Or there's <laughs> something about the energy of the room that feels good to her. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but I I just keep doing it. Yeah. Good for you. No, that's really challenging. Like, I mean, teenagers overall, I think would be one of the most challenging populations to teach. Do you bring anything into that room that's different from with your other prenatal classes? Uh, I just try to get through it. Yeah. <laughs> it's <so laughs> awful. But no, I mean, I bring, I came the first day and I was like, let's talk about where you're relaxed and let's make your breath sound like the ocean. And I tried all these things and they just were looking at me like I was completely from Mars. Mm-hmm. And so I play music, which I wouldn't do so much in my regular class. Oh, that's smart. Yeah. I do play music, which seems to help make them feel a little less awkward and weird. And the classes, I do it until they stop, like, participating. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. Sometimes it's just 30 minutes. Right. And I can tell they're done. So I'm like, that's cool. Lay down on your left side and just, like, settle in just for a minute. And they fall asleep more often than my oh. other in my other class. Yeah. So that's one thing that I've noticed. But it's, you know, they have all of the same anxieties and worries and and everything that any other pregnant woman would. And then I'm sure it's times a thousand because of where they are in their life and you know, they're living in a group home. Yeah. I don't know, you know, I don't know why and I don't ask questions or anything, but Right, right, right. I do have to approach it just a little bit differently because of the situation, for sure. Yeah, no, the music is really smart. I mean, that's got to help be helpful for them and for you too, just to kind of fill the space a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Because they, you know, they look at me like I am insane. So I try to just get them right into it and get moving. And like I said, sometimes things land and I can tell that it's like, oh, and then other times they're like, just get me out of here. Right, right, right. (laughs) And I I get that because I started practicing when I was a teenager too. And I had that same angsty, like, what are you talking about attitude? Yeah. Yeah. You're kind of between development phases. I was at a hospital in San Francisco that at the time was well known for having a, a midwifery program. So we had to participate in this birthing group classes, these classes. And so there were most of the women in the group were a lot younger than me. Some of them looked really young. I would say the oldest was like 23 or 24. And I remember that too, that they had a really hard time just kind of being present with the group and being we had to talk about our fears at one point and they just could most of them just couldn't even, they were like, I can't talk about it. I'm too scared. They were actually oh. just really scared of the delivery. And then ironically, a month after our babies were all born, because we were all sort of on the same schedule, that's why we were put together. We uh-huh. went back for a little reunion and I was the oldest in the group. I was 40. And then there was another woman who was maybe like, 
she was a lot younger than me, but she was considered old for that group. She was like maybe 33. And then all the other ones, myself and the 33-year-old had the sort of the worst kind of, I shouldn't say the worst births, but you know what I mean? Like I had a C-section, she had a forceps baby, which was just traumatizing for her. Her baby ended up in the NICU. And then all of the young women had these beautiful, miraculous, like push their babies out in three hours. And honestly, I was so happy for them because they had all been so scared. But Jason and I were just laughing. We were going, we all had to go around in a circle and tell the story of our birth. And what, you know, it's like, oh, I called my, my aunt and she told me to put a, bowl of water under the bed. And then two hours later, the baby came. I was like, oh my goodness. Oh, that's so funny. (laughs) Somebody should write a book just of all of the like old wives tells about pregnancy and birth. I know. I know. I know. Well, there's some good ones. That bowl of water clearly did something. (laughs) Is there anything I want to talk about your course because you put together an online course, but is there anything else about your live classes that I missed that you wanted to put out there for everyone? I mean, I feel like we've already talked about this in another way, but I would love to hear you say, you know, what you most wish for your students. Because I know when I was teaching and I wasn't teaching pregnant women, I just had such a feeling of warmth for my students. And I'm sure with, you know, pregnant women, it's even more that way. So do you think about that? Like what you wish for them? The big takeaways, I think, that I hope that people will get out of my classes are the things that I already talked about, that they're so much stronger than people lead them to believe, that they can do so much more than even they know that they can, for sure, that they have this inner guide that no one understands. But I think it's been proven, not scientifically, but like through... Um, anecdotally, that this voice is valid and it's so wise and it's really worth at least trying to tap into. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is community. So we didn't talk a whole lot about that, but Mm -hmm. I think that that's one thing that I try to do. I mean, all prenatal yoga classes, I think, have an element to this. But it's just so important to have other people who are kind of navigating the same kinds of issues, the same kinds of fears, the same kinds of like decisions all at the same time so that they can just kind of commiserate over it. And so I do have like a a Facebook group that is kind of just for that because it's hard in the group class setting to really get to know people on that level. But I found that they can come off and get online after class and share their recommendations for like local providers and ask their questions and be a lot more open. And then I notice like relationships start there. And then when they come back to the class the next time, people will be going to get coffee after class and things like that. So that's a great idea. That's That's a great idea. Yeah. And then I try to continue that relationship after babies are born, I do like a monthly, I call it spoiled Sunday because my website is spoiled yogi or whatever. Uh And we do it on Sundays, but once a month, because that's doable for most moms. And it's like a two hour thing where we do yoga and some kind of social thing. So we'll get coffee or we'll do like something else. We've had like a brunch, 
I did a beach yoga class one time, but it's setting like this stage to just get out of your house and stay in touch with these people who are really your people if you've been going to yoga for a long time. So I love that idea. That's great, Erica. That's so smart. Both of those ideas are great. Yeah. It's so fun. (laughs) So tell me about the online course. Who is it for and how have you set it up? So the course is really for anybody who is thinking about giving birth Or I think it would be really helpful for anybody who teaches pregnant women or works with pregnant women. So even like doulas or care providers, nurses, anybody who helps pregnant women Mm -hmm. get through the biggest fears and the biggest like blocks about their births. Because the big thing that I've noticed, at least in my births and in talking to other women, is that when you're super fearful of birth, everything tightens up just like just like when you're scared of anything else. Mm-hmm. And when you're in the birthing room, you want to do the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. So it really addresses the mind-body connection, that intuition piece that I keep rambling on and on about. And using that connection to help you to just soften and relax all over, which for a lot of people could make their labor go much faster. There are Hmm. actually studies that have shown that women who do prenatal yoga do have a faster birth and show that they have less pain during their labor too. Hmm. I'll have to give you that study so that we can add it in the show notes. Yeah, that would be great. Cool. So is there, for the course, does it walk you through sequences as well as mental exercises? Yeah, so it's both. It has six modules, I think. And there's a module for intuition, which has a yoga practice and some like meditation type stuff to get you in the right mindset, Mm -hmm. which I think is the most important part. There is a a module about like getting baby into position. So Mm -hmm. that has a little yoga practice. There is a birth checklist, which basically is just a list of all the different things that you can try when you actually are in labor and your brain goes to mush and you can't even think about what to do. If you have somebody there that has a list, it's like, did you try this? Did you try this? Mm -hmm. That's great. That could be really helpful. And then one of the things that I haven't been able to do in my like live workshops that I've done around this is there's a whole module on partnering. So ways that you're partner can help support you during the labor and delivery. So if you're like I was and my partner was, I mean, he went to the hospital birth class or whatever, but he had better things to do and it just isn't his thing. And there was absolutely no way I was going to get him to go to like a yoga studio Mm -hmm. and do any of that with me. I could have gotten him to sit down and watch this like 15 minute thing that shows how he can help. Yeah. And And I love this part of it because I actually sit down with one of my students and her husband and I speak directly to the partner and I'm like, if you do nothing else, your job is to breathe with her and just tell her she's doing a good job. Yeah. So true. So true. (laughs) So true. Yeah. So, uh, and I think most people like they get all caught up and they watch the like movies where there's the husband is coaching the wife on how to breathe and 
it's ridiculous, right? Yeah, didn't it didn't happen for us. It's so overwhelming for them. They have no, you know, they've never seen you in this state. And it's hard for them too. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but like my husband, I just remember his face when we first got to the hospital with my first and his eyes were like this. And I could tell he was freaking out. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, you were freaking, freaking out to you. So having a plan would have helped him having a list of like, maybe you should try this. Mm-hmm. I think like would have been so beneficial yeah. to him, even if all the things on the list don't work or whatever. Totally. It doesn't matter. No, it doesn't <laughs> right? matter. Jason kept touching my stomach. And I was like, oh, get God. off of me. Like, I just wanted him to touch my back. But he was just so freaked out. He just kept trying to like rub my stomach. Oh, my God. And so then he <laughs> felt like he shouldn't touch me at all. And then I felt yeah. like I was really alone because he wouldn't, you know. So oh, yeah, I so mean, hard. having that list of things, I think would be really helpful. And like you said, if they don't work, you just move on to the next thing. It's everybody's yeah. different. But like, maybe there's someone out there who likes to have her stomach touched when she's laboring. I doubt it but <laughs> right yeah i don't know but it's it's a good idea to just have like a plan yeah and it doesn't have to be this like really like drawn out labor plan and that's the other thing like with my second i barely had like a birth plan at all because i was like what is the point with my first i wrote down all this stuff like no episiotomies yeah. no this no that no <laughs> control over most of those things I know and so my midwife was just kind of like okay yeah yeah I know I know (laughs) so I don't know it is so funny there's a really funny comedic take on a birth plan on McSweeney's I'll have to look it up it's (laughs) hysterical it's like you know like oh I don't know lavender shall be sprayed on the baby's head as he crowns you know just all these things (laughs) like all you just you have all these hopes and wishes for like you said how you can control it and it is a combination of effort and surrender let's just say Totally. Just like yoga. And there's nothing wrong with having these visions of how you want it to go, right? right. You just have to be like, well, this is would be nice. But if it doesn't go that way, it's not my fault. And I'll get through it and it'll be okay. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. So that's the big, that's the course in a nutshell. We go really deep into like, um, you know, what's your biggest fear and how to flip that fear into a positive affirmation instead so that that is your thing that you can focus on as you're giving birth. That was really helpful for me, my second go around to you. So that's a big part of it too, dealing with those fears. We do a little yoga practice that challenges you physically to kind of show you that you're stronger than maybe you think you are overcoming like those kind of mental blocks. And it's just basically all the things that I wish I had had before I had my first. That's awesome. I I wish I had had it too, Erica. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm excited to share it with everyone. So obviously, I'll put it on the show notes page and all the places people can find you. And thank you so much for talking to me today. This was just so fun. It was awesome. Thank you so much. I hope that even the people who are listening who are not moms (laughs) get something from it too. If it even if it's just like the intuition piece of it and the amazingness of the human body. Yeah, absolutely. And, and cultivating that, you know, on your mat, so you can bring it with you to when you've got difficult decisions to make, and you're juggling lots of different opinions to come back to, like you said, come back to trusting yourself. It's a great concept. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thanks, Erica. Thank you so much. 
Thanks for listening. I'll put links to Erica's course and her classes and her YouTube channel and her Facebook group at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 156. If you enjoy the podcast, be sure to share it or leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I do appreciate it. And until next week, enjoy your practice.